Hello, Kako. You are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exist to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource of Kilina, a connection to place. Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Street. My name is Nohea. I come from Waimanalo and I live on Ilahole Street. Um, mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Kealani Cook from UH West Oahu. Uh, he is a teacher there in history, and I'm going to let him kind of describe a little bit more about what he does. Yeah. Take it away. Um, mahalo. Aloha kako. O kealani ko uinoa. No wai mea Hawaii go. I'm, yeah, I'm from uh, Waimea on Hawaii Island originally, but my parents grew up over on Oahu, moved to the Big Island, and then you know, my sister moved back. And I, yeah, I've been teaching at UH West Oahu for about, this is my fifth year, and it was four years over at uh, Maui, Maui CC before that. What about your education? Um, I actually... So I got my bachelor's at Manoa um, in actually in civil engineering. And I was working with a civil engineer for a while and I, was, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so I, I stopped. Um, I didn't want any bridges falling down. Um, and I was good at history. So I went back and I got my master's in history at Manoa and then went to Michigan for my PhD. Um, they had a small Pacific um, studies group they were putting together up there for a while. Um, so myself, Dean Saranilio, um, and Lenny Tevis were up there. What is, why would you go to Michigan for Pacific? Cause I guess I, it's not here. Yeah. It, they were paying. They were, they, they were willing to pay for a full ride and getting a full ride out of Manoa is, is hard. <laughs> and Michigan just okay. had, too much money so um they had um the, the people i was working with were um vince diaz who's ponapan filipino but he's from guam um uh damon salesa who was like the first someone road scholar i think something like that um and then amy stillman who's um Kanaka, um, she does, she does hula, um, and, and now she's doing, uh, she's an ethnomusicologist with a lot of history too. So, and oh. don't ask me what an ethnomusicologist is because I don't know. <laughs> I sound I know, important though. I know. I know. It sounds, <laughs> like I know she does lots of stuff with music and history. <laughs> um, so they, they basically had them and they're looking for students. And so they, they offered us, they offered us money to come up and they paid for the, they paid for the program and they gave us stipends. Um, so we're able to just work on the PhD, which is what, like, what was your project? Um, so I was looking at, um, partly because I was up there, I wanted to, I was like, well, I can't, you know, there's, I'm coming home every summer and there's the archives and stuff, but while I was up there, I was working with all these other Pacific Islanders who were just kind of like, there was like the one Samoan student and like, you know, and so it was just kind of, and 
between that and conferences and seeing how much connection there was between different places mm-hmm. um, and how we were kind of studying the same stuff and how Hawaiians keep popping up in Samoan history and Tahitians keep popping up in Hawaiian history. So uh, my project was actually looking at how Hawaiians were um, building connections with other islanders in the 19th and early 20th century because we kind of we kind of lose track of like like now we're like oh yeah like every hawaiian that can goes down to aotearoa and comes back with like as much ponamo as they can um (laughs) and and like and we know like oh that's this we can trace ancestry back there but then there's this big 19th 20th century period that we don't think about we don't talk about it because we're so focused on america and there's this big period where it's like oh they're going back and forth like there's yeah um johnny wilson who is the first or not the first but like the second and fourth and sixth or something like that mayor of honolulu he's in and out of office is hawaiian tahitian um uh john tomato baker who's the the last third of my book is on him but he was the last governor of the big island the last royal governor of the big island and he's his grandfather is a Tahitian that came to Hawaii as a missionary. So there's this there's all these wow. different connections and the Hawaiians are like seagoing peoples. So right. the second there's like more boats in the water, the Hawaiian like Hawaiian men are going everywhere and some Hawaiian women. So it's just this kind of like there's all this movement. So I kinda I looked at three cases that I could find a lot of evidence for and, and just packed them in. Um, and the book came out 2018 um it's uh return to kahiki um maybe we jump right into the the topic of why we got started in this specific conversation uh, i reached out and we had talked earlier but on this specific case i was like um july 4th is in a couple of days do you mind doing something on history we finally got to the conclusion of this uh willie mckinley and the things that were going on in the annexation and other wars surrounding it. So I'm going to let you go ahead and start. I might stop you for clarification. Um, yeah. So when, when you reach out, you're saying, you know, maybe we'll look at McKinley. And I started, I started kind of playing around with some stuff. Um, but one of the things is if you focus in on McKinley, um, is that you can really use McKinley um, to not only look at empire in Hawaii, but because he's the, I mean, he's right at the turning point where America goes from sort of this kind of isolationist where they're like, they're mostly concerned about taking lands and it's isolationist, but it's mostly concerned about taking lands that were native American lands. And like, they're focusing on that project. And, you know, that's a, that's a, at that point, a 300-year-old project under the British and then under the Americans. Um, but at this point, you know, around 19, 1880s, 1890s, well, actually around 1890, they're running out of land to steal. I mean, there just really isn't big plots of land to steal. And what that was left are mostly areas that are reservations. I mean, they've pushed people to the worst of the worst lands and they'll continue, you know, stealing that land. But a lot of, there's something called the frontier thesis, where what this American historian argued, um, Turner, that 
the thing that made America America was was well he he was like oh the thing that makes us america is that there's a frontier and we're always moving forward and another way of looking at it is the thing that makes america america in his eyes was stealing land from people we steal land that, <laughs> that was like it's like you really you you can spin that but, one, but that is what you're what going year? to the definition what, this what is like the 1890s he's writing okay Okay. And it's right when they're running out of frontier. They're like, there's the West Coast is moving east and the East Coast is moving west and they're meeting in Utah and like there's no more big chunks to steal. Um and they've been eyeing like they've been eyeballing Hawaii. There's some there's some always been some Americans who like wanted overseas empire. Um there's these guys called the filibusters. Um and they used to like every once in a while there'd be an effort to like take over Cuba. Or some of them went down to, I should have brushed up on this, but like Venezuela or something, like took it over for a while. Are they like businessmen? Are they politicians? Some businessmen, some politicians, a lot of uh, military and former military. Um, But basically they put together a small mercenary army and just try and take someplace over. Um, There was threats that they were going to do that here at the end of um, Kauikeo Oli's reign, at the end of Kamehameha III's reign. Um, and they said that they had these filibusters and, and this is one of the reasons Kamehameha III apparently was negotiating with the Americans about like potentially having some sort of annexation was because he didn't want a mercenary army showing up. And as long as there's an official negotiation, this mercenary army is never going to show up because it's, yeah. it'll be an embarrassment to the United States. So that was, he was just kind of playing that off until possibly until they knew whether or not this army existed. Um, mm. But for the most part, America was not officially that interested in expansion. But they're, I mean, they're eyeballing us from the 1830s, mostly because of Pearl Harbor. Um, like when you look at it, yeah, it's you get Pearl Harbor and Lahaina. And you have these incredible warm water ports that are pretty mellow during the winter. Um, Pearl Harbor, I mean, completely protected. And it's in the middle of the ocean. It's halfway between here, right, between, well, we're halfway between them and, um, and Asia. And that's where, I mean, that's where a lot of the wealth was. Um, so there's, they've been eyeballing us for a while. Um, they had gone and surveyed stuff um, and checked it out. And they actually had negotiated um, first, um, under Luna Lilo, there was a brief period where they're potentially negotiating Pearl Harbor in exchange for the reciprocity treaty. And when news of that got out, people were pissed. Um, so Luna Lilo immediately pulled that back out. Um, he was told his advisors, mostly how they, they had, they were like, Oh, it'll be fine. Everyone will, no one, no one cares about Pearl Harbor. And immediately when people found out they were just incensed, like, like Kalakaua, um, Queen Emma, like, they went after him. Um, and so he pulled that treaty back, but this, the, um, what actually ends up being the second, that reciprocity treaty doesn't go through. Um, and then uh, Kalakaua gets one done early in his career um, that doesn't give away Pearl Harbor. But then there's a second one where they actually, um, after the Bayonet Constitution, they, the Americans that are basically placed themselves in, um, in his cabinet, they propose to the Americans on the American side. So it's the Americans in Hawaii pretending to be the Hawaiian government, proposing to the Americans being the American government. 
that they give Pearl Harbor in exchange for renewing reciprocity. And that's how they, so they already had a long-term lease on Pearl Harbor before any of this happened, but they wanted more of a secure base. Um, and there's, they're talking about it in, um, uh, John Blaine, who is the secretary of state. Um, so he's in charge of all the diplomatic stuff for the U S in the 1880s. He's already talking about, there's only three places we really need to take. We need to take Hawaii, um, Cuba, and I think it was Hawaii, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Um, in order to, yeah, once we have those and we have an overseas empire and there's all this thing about like the new naval technology, they can control everything without actually, there's not enough places left for them to create a empire like the British and just take land, take land, take land. But they can control everything just by having huge fleets like we do now sitting down in Pearl Harbor sitting in San Diego, sitting in Puerto Rico, waiting, right? And that's how we, yeah, like, like we just, have, yep. And we just have the bases everywhere and they can, we can put power anywhere we want in the world. And that allows us to be an empire without having empire. And that was kind of the argument. And Hawaiians knew this. I mean, they weren't, they weren't quiet about it. They came, they told us that they were, they were trying to take stuff. Um, but we were able to, to keep, keep them off. Um, and even after the overthrow, um, the first treaty of annexation goes through. They, they overthrow the queen, immediately send the first treaty through. But there's enough of the isolationist sentiment in the U.S. There's enough people in the U.S. that are like, we don't want to be a, an empire. Like, we're America. Sure, we, we, we have this land-based empire. But we're fighting, like, we fought the British, the British are an empire. Empires are bad. So there's enough of that sentiment. And then um, enough sort of this pro-democracy thinking. Like, you can't take over someone else's country as a democracy <laughs> and then be like, we're taking democracy to the world. Like, did the people there want to come? No, they did not want to come. That's not a democracy. And Grover Cleveland, who gets elected president, is one of the ones who's like, that's... Taking, it, taking other people's independence away. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like you you like you can't do that and claim you're doing democracy. <laughs> like that's and so there's and Mark Twain was one of them, Grover Cleveland, all these guys are arguing and Grover Cleveland gets elected president. So he withdraws the treaty. So the first treaty goes down because the president withdraws it and says, We are not gonna annex someplace where the people and he sent over people to ask. He sent over Blunt, Blunt, I don't know, it's B-L-O-U-N-T, and I can never remember if it's Blount or Blunt or some weird <laughs> pronunciation like that. But he sends this guy over, and he's like, none of the Hawaiians want to be part of America. They want to be Hawaii. And that's when the coup leaders are like, no, 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 no. The U.S. has to stay out of our business. We are the Republic of Hawaii. And that's so they, they create this republic, and like you can vote, but you got to promise to basically like you have to promise that you recognize us as a legitimate government. And most of the Hawaiians are like, we're not going to recognize you as a yeah. legitimate government because it's a coup. Like you don't recognize coup leaders. <laughs> um, but well, you're stealing us. We want you to vote for us. <laughs> yeah, like, look, I know we took all your land that's and we crazy. took your your independence and we took everything and we're. Yeah. You know, but actually they hadn't even taken all the land yet. They wanted the political power to justify taking the rest of the land. And so they, um, yeah, they, 
they get denied. Cleveland denies them. Um, and they're, they're going to fail. I mean, they're, they're not competent. Like they're not actual, like they're lawyers and lawyers are good at, like you need lawyers in government, but lawyers look at what they can do not what they should do, which is, I mean, it's a horrible stereotyping of all lawyers, but that's, that's kind of the, (laughs) like, that's the mentality of studying law is it's not what should be done, but what can be done. Yeah. Manipulating a law in order to get what you want. Yeah. And for these specific lawyers. (laughs) Yeah. And so they, they, you know, they, they send through, um, they wait out Cleveland, but they're, they're failing. They're accruing this huge debt. They have an army. Like they had to put together a mercenary army because once the U.S. troops left, Cleveland pulls the U.S. troops out. And the U.S. troops are why the queen surrendered because there's U.S. troops lined up across the Eleni Palace. Um, yeah. And once the U.S. troops are gone, they had to have a mercenary army. So they had to pay the mercenary army. They had, um, and I mean, they are paying them a lot most of those guys stay on and become the national guard after annexation and they ring up like millions of dollars um, because they're, they're paying all of them full salaries, even though they're, they're only showing up once they, in a while. Out. they have gold, like gold threads in all their uniforms. Wow. Um, and there's an investigation that comes in is just like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> um, and they're, they were like $2 million in debt by the time the U.S. took over. I mean, they had this huge oh debt. And that was one of the things that they criticized Kalakaua for. It was like, oh, you're, you're going to run up debt if you try and, you know, build infrastructure. And, like, debt should only be used to apparently have gold thread in your uniforms. <laughs> um, so there's this, yeah, there's this, but there's this, enough people in the Senate that even after Cleveland is gone and McKinley is Cleveland elected. Died. Cleveland's shot, right? No, so Cleveland, um, I mean, he does get shot. No, but he, he actually gets voted out. McKinley's the one who gets shot. Oh, oh Cleveland, I think, I don't, Cleveland might have got shot too, but he didn't get killed. Anyways. He might have, he but it wasn't in office. Oh, okay. And like, once he was out of office, I, I forget about Cleveland. <laughs> Although he's okay. like, he's one of the presidents that was like for Hawaiian history, like, we should have a Cleveland high school. Yeah, like Cleveland. If we're gonna have one for a, a president from the U.S., it, sh- it should be should Cleveland. Replace McKinley with a Cleveland. That would like if we have to. If we have to have a U.S. president, if, yeah. If we it have be to <laughs> compromise. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he okay. right. and but they put another treaty through, and this is when the Queen goes to the Queen goes to Washington D.C. She sends all these. I think Parker goes over. Um, and then this is when the petitions are going through. And so the petitions are showing up and it's absolutely obvious. And it's in the testimony that it's clear the Hawaiians do not want to be part of the United States. Um, and the arguments, the arguments in the, the center are basically like, well, you know, we, we've never really cared that much about what not white people thought when we took over their stuff. Um, but there was a recognition of, well, Hawaii, Hawaii is different. And like, this is, it's screwed up. It shouldn't be different. Like, just like, oh yeah, Hawaiians are illiterate and Christian. Well, if someone's illiterate and not a Christian, they should still get to keep their own land. Right. <laughs> but they're, they're making these arguments and then, you know, they're expecting like savages to show up. And then the, you know, the queen shows up and she's got like, they, 
the whole royal family had these kind of like oh, British right. accents they had picked up because they're they're really embracing the British royal family. Um, Lenny goes over there and everyone's like, what does a like a heathen princess look like? And they get there and they're like, oh, she's really pretty and really smart. Yeah, oh, damn, like, she's hot. <laughs> we thought she was going to be like throwing spears around. <laughs> but they convince enough of the Senate. And this is between the, the racist Southern Democrats who are like, we do not want us a, a no, no more brown people coming in. Yeah. Between them and the people who actually believed in democracy, it's this weird alliance um, who are saying you can't, we, we can't annex people who do not want to be part of the United States. Like that is not what the United States is supposed to be for. Between those two groups, they defeated in the Senate. Because a treaty has to go through with more than a majority. It has to go through, I think it's two thirds um, of the Senate. So you defeat it in the Senate. And that's like, that should be it. Because they're not going to be able to resubmit the treaty. They would have to renegotiate an entirely new treaty. Um, and um, those same people are still sitting in the Senate. So they're going to, they're basically going to have to wait until they get rid of enough of those people in the Senate and replace them with pro imperialists before they'll be able to annex Hawaii. And this is the last time the U.S. seemed to give a flying crap about whether or not indigenous people wanted to be part of the U.S. before they, they pulled them in. And that's and like there's this there's this moment where it's it's this change because we defeated it. The treaty was dead. Um, the Republic. Treaty number two. Treaty number two. Yeah. So like one Cleveland Yank, the second one. McKinley, as soon as he's in office, is like, yes, we not we need this. Um, he later on says, I have a quote here from him. We need Hawaii just as much and a good deal more than we did California. It is manifest destiny. It's America's destiny. We need Hawaii because in order for America to rule um, the Pacific, we need Hawaii. And Hawaii is the center of militarily, like is absolutely necessary for them. Mm -hmm. Um and this is, but, but it failed, right? So okay. like, like that's it's just a crazy moment where like, we actually, if the Spanish American war didn't break out, Hawaiian history could have been incredibly different. Different. Because. Sorry, let me, let me but, clarify real fast. So treaty two is created because these lawyers put together a treaty, but basically really didn't get buy-in from the actual people. Yeah. So there somehow a treaty was written. Yeah. And then delivered and they're like, yeah, that sounds good. And then the queen goes up and is like, this isn't true. Don't look at the treaty. It's yes. so, <laughs> you wouldn't look at it, but it's not it's, right. It's okay. crazy because they, they're the officially recognized government of Hawaii because the, they're the Republic of Hawaii. Okay. But and they're pushing through this. They, I mean, they have a whole propaganda barrage going through these major newspapers in the in the U.S. about like, oh, like all the people here, they want to be part of the U.S. and like they're so ready to become part of the U.S. and they'll be such great citizens and everything. Um, and a lot of people believed it, and it was it's really like the queen has to go propaganda. door to door in the Senate and be like, "Hello, I'm the queen. <laughs> they took my stuff." No one wants to go here. Here's a petition of 300, like, or not 300, sorry, 30,000 people, for, or two petitions with 30,000 names of people who do yeah. not want to be part of the United States. And they're kind of like, oh, oh 
that's that's the entire voting population. They're like, yeah, it's the entire voting that's population. Yeah, so they it's just they 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 just like, well, come on, doesn't the U.S. want to take stuff over? Because the a lot of the Americans that are in Hawaii, they're involved in this. Like this includes the ones who are born in Hawaii, who are technically Hawaiian citizens. Like um, Dole um, and and Thurston, and then the Americans that are coming over. So it's um, you know the the representative Stevens, et cetera. Like they're so like they're part of the America should take over the world sort of subgroup within the American foreign policy world, mm-hmm. and they can't believe that Americans like that they're Americans who don't see it as their patriotic duty to take Hawaii immediately. But luckily there's at least a third of the Senate that sees it as their American duty not to take over Hawaii. Um, and it's like, I mean, if things had ended there, the Republic probably has two, three more years before they collapse. Like how long can you run an army that's going to run over your, your, your population when you just like, they depend, they're dependent on Hawaiians uh, for everything. Like they're dependent on the Hawaiians for running a lot of the, you know, the day-to-day civil service. They're dependent on Japanese mostly for not just labor um, in terms of the fields, but also like the Japanese at this, by this point, the Chinese and Japanese are like a huge chunk of their domestic labor. Like they're not doing anything like everyone else is doing stuff. And eventually like this is not going to be sustainable. Um, And then the best thing ever for that coup group happens and that's the Spanish American war because the Spanish American war and it's Cuba. And this is, this is going to sound like some, like it sounds like a bad script because the Cubans are fighting against the Spanish empire and the Spanish empire is this old doddering empire. Um, the Cubans are fighting against them for their independence. And the American newspapers, including all the imperialist newspapers, are like, the Cuban revolutionaries are the bravest, most wonderful people in the world because they're fighting against an empire. And we have to do everything we can to help defeat that empire. And some of the people who are saying that are like, yeah, we need to help them defeat the Spanish empire. And the Spanish, were they were doing horrific things in Cuba. Like, they were... They were because they're fighting, they're fighting a, a counterinsurgency. It's a counterinsurgency strategy. So they're fighting an insurgency. They don't know who the revolutionaries are. So they're putting everybody in towns into basically in, like encampments. Encampment. And wow. It is literally a concentration camp. Not in the term, like we think a concentration camp, like the Nazis extermination camps. Yeah. But this was the, the usage back then was what the British did in South Africa against the Boers were like the the white German Germanic South Africans um, that originally stole the land from the black South Africans, um, but they they put all the women and children in camps, and then the men are starved out um, and can't fight anymore because the women and like you're scared that your women and children are going to die, so you come mm-hmm. down, you stop fighting. Um, so that they're doing that, they're shooting suspected spies. They're like the Spanish were they're an empire that was dying and dying empires are violent. I mean, empires are all violent, but dying ones are particularly violent. So a lot of Americans were like, we got to take out the Spanish and other Americans were like, yes, we have to take out the Spanish and then we have to take their empire. Um, so, so this, the Spanish American war happens. It's, you know, it, um, one of our ships blows up 
it was the USS Maine. Um, it blows up in Havana, in Havana, um, and American. It's like a year or two after the Queen comes and the treaty. Yes, this is all happening. Like I mean, year in less than a year afterward. Okay. So in Hawaii, people were just like, okay, we just can kick back and wait for this to fall. And then we can yeah. have our land back. Um, but, but this war starts. And immediately, so the, the U.S.'s main blows up. Um, and they, they say, oh, it was, it was this, the Spanish blew it up. And the Spanish, like, we didn't, we didn't blow it up. It was a neutral ship sitting in the middle of the harbor. We have no reason to start a war with America because America has much more modern battleships than we do right now. Um, but the American press runs with it. And McKinley actually doesn't want to get into the war at first. Um, hmm. McKinley is all about making money. Like, he's a money guy. He wants to grow U.S. industries. He wants protective tariffs, et cetera. And the war, he was like, well, maybe we can negotiate with, the, or with Spain and Cuba and do something. Um, but once that happens, and there's this huge uproar in the U.S., and he's like, there's... You know, there are no brave politicians in war. Um, so he immediately just says, yeah, OK, we'll go. We'll fight this war. Um, sends troops. But before U.S. troops even land in Cuba to support the Cubans, and that was the reason we we're going into war, um, Admiral Dewey, um, who's in charge of the U.S. Pacific Fleet or the Asiatic Fleet, sails into Manila. At first, he sails into Guam. Um, takes over Guam, swells, sails into Manila Harbor, just sinks the entire Spanish fleet in like like six hours, crushes them, and then lands. There's While this is going on, the Filipinos have been trying to get free from Spain, or some, some Filipinos have been trying to get free from Spain for, for decades. So they're trying to get free, and they had reached the deal where one of the leaders was exiled in exchange for the Spanish, basically, like, you guys stay in the cities, and you guys stay in your forts, and you don't come out, and Aguinaldo will go. And the U.S. brought Aguinaldo back, Emilio Aguinaldo. We brought the revolutionaries back, and we're like, hey, we're going to help you guys, like, defeat the Spanish and set up your own country. And... Um, and that didn't happen. Um, we had to do it with Cuba because in order for the war um, declaration to go through the U.S. Congress, they passed something called the Teller Amendment. I think it was Teller um, that said, if we go to war with Spain over Cuba, at the end of the war, Cuba is free. And enough people in this, you were there like, yeah, we're, we're going in to help the Cubans. Mm-hmm. But all these Puerto Ricans and Chamorro and Filipinos and like whoever else that Spain is controlling over, like they're not in the Teller Amendment. So even though it's like the argument is that like, we're going to go and we're going to rescue all these people from Spain. The only ones who get rescued are Cuba and the rest just get a new empire sitting on top of them. And that is like all of this is happening just within a matter of months. And at the same time, all of the people who wanted Hawaii are saying, well, you know, if we're going to be taking over Guam and the Philippines, um, we're going to need Hawaii really badly. And we have a base there. They're a friendly country and we, we do have a base there, but it'd be much better if Hawaii was a base. And that's how the U.S. military looked at us then. That's how they looked at us in World War II. Hawaii was a base. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we're a base with, with people on it is, is how the military has always seen it. Um, and so they passed the Newlands Resolution. And this McKinley pushes this, like, helps push this through. He's a big supporter of it. Um, and essentially they're able to pass it through 
through this resolution. And even people who had voted against it initially voted for it um, because there's there's no brave politicians in a war. And this is this is the moment where it's like, oh, well, what about like all the democracy parts that you guys have been talking about? That's all gone. Um, and Aguinaldo and Aguinaldo gets a lot of the press. There's other major Filipino leaders. These Filipino leaders are meeting with the U.S. They have basically surrounded the Spanish in, in Manila and in and these other forts or fortified cities and stuff. And in the Philippines, the U.S. is telling the Filipinos, hey, you guys, just don't attack right now. We're negotiating and we're your buddies. Everything will be fine. Like we will negotiate with the Spanish and then you guys will have your independence. And then more and more signs start coming out that like something's up. Um, And the first one is there's a battle, the first battle for Manila um, where the U.S. basically goes in and fires four shots and the Spanish flag comes down and the, you know, we'd already taken the harbor, but this is for Manila, the, the actual city. Spanish flag comes down, the U.S. flag goes up. The Filipino army is sitting around in the hills outside and just like, um, what the F? we, this was not, this was not what we talked about. And then the Americans are like, oh, no, no, we're, again, trust us, we're just negotiating. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just part of the process. Um, and then, and then there's a Treaty of Paris, and the whole time, McKinley is saying, "Oh, I don't know what's going to happen in the treaty. I know I don't I don't think we're going to try and take stuff over. Well, maybe the Philippines will hold it for a little while and then free it. We don't know." Um, the Treaty of Paris between U.S. and the Philippines or U.S. and Spain goes through, and in the treaty, we essentially buy Guam and the Philippines. Mm. And news of this gets back to Aguinaldo them. And then Aguinaldo and them are looking at the U.S. And they're like, look, we're having trouble defeating the Spanish. And the Spanish were at this point a third-rate empire. The U.S. is this sort of... It's a second-rate naval power compared to Britain. But technology has changed so much in the last four years that the American fleet is in, like just... It's going to crush us. And the Spanish didn't allow a lot of weapons to come in. So, like, some of the Filipino... Um, army like they were armed with like basically like yeah so they're just like you you got a machete and if you kill somebody (laughs) you got a gun um so they they were like we don't want to fight with the americans but at the same time like we're a, a national army we want our nation um like they had been working for that nationhood for for decades i mean in some areas you know centuries on and off and so but they're aguinaldo's holding them back um, and then at one point, the the American general that, that gets put in place of the land troops, this guy named Otis. And Otis had been, um, he had fought in the, what were called the Indian Wars. And he wrote this book called The Indian Problem. Um, and his argument was the way that America should deal with Native Americans is to remove them from wherever they are. Put them in small, small reservations surrounded by white people. So like eight, like stick 800 Native Americans in the middle of Chicago. Tell them they don't get shh, but they don't get anything. Uh, and then eventually they're going to starve or breed themselves out and there won't be Native Americans anymore. And he was sort of celebrated as like, oh, that's such a nice way of doing it instead of going and slaughtering them like we have been. <laughs> so 
that's the guy that they put in charge. So you can imagine like he's in charge of the Philippines. Yeah. So they basically the Americans keep trying to push buttons. McKinley sends out this proclamation basically saying, Hey, Filipinos, we're going to run things for you guys. We're, we're a nice empire, not like your old empire, but this is ours now. And the Americans are like, we're going to doctor this because we still have to deal with the Filipinos on a day-to-day basis. There is an army surrounding the city. Um, so they doctor it up. But one of the American officers gives his Filipino counterpart the actual doc- or declaration. And the Filipino, like a lot of people in the, the Filipino army are like, no, we got we to gotta fight now. And Aguinaldo holds them back some more. So he's losing a grip because, like, people, they know the fix is in, but he's also like, this is, militarily, this is going to be a quick beating for us. Yeah. Uh, and then American troops declared that this one town is theirs on the outskirts of, the, of Manila. Filipino troops walk through the town. They get shot. And then Aguinaldo sends a notice down saying, hey, hey, we're not starting a fight here. We Like, what's going on? Let's meet. And Otis sends a note, but basically saying, fighting having, having begun, it must see itself to its end. So, like, oh. once a gunshot is fired, we're going to go through and we're going to kill everybody that's left with a gun or a machete. Um, and they do. Like, they, they go through, they really quickly wipe everybody out. But the Filipinos go to what they've been using against the Spanish, which is like, hey we can't fight you as an army because like the Spanish stripped all the wealth out of the Philippines for 400 years, but we know how to fight like guerrillas. So they go back to guerrilla warfare and the American, like this, this war, it's the same stuff that happens in Vietnam, et cetera. Like we end up seeing, um, America in a war of occupation against guerrilla forces. And that means American soldiers, are going to slowly start to, and especially against guerrillas that they see as an ethnic inferior. Like there's definitely a sense that they're like ethnic or racially inferior. Um, and they just start massacring people. Um, they start committing what would like clearly be war crimes. And even at that time, a bunch mm-hmm. of people go up for trial um, for committing war crimes, but it kind of gets hushed up. Um, there's one general who, when, um, there's a attack and, um, his troops had gone in and basically gone to the small town. Things started off kind of friendly and then they just started pushing everybody around. Um, and then the people in the town were like, okay, these guys all die. Um, and they killed a bunch of the American troops and the general ordered that everybody on that whole peninsula, not just that town, every male over the age of 10 be murdered. And over the age of what? 10. And the troops actually mutiny. Like that was, that one was one step too far. The troops mutinied. Um, they still killed like a lot of civilians, but they're like, we're not killing everybody over the age of 10. Like that's not for every male over the age of 10. But there's this, like, if you go back and you look through some of the, the wars against native Americans, like, that's the stuff that they were doing there. And they're exporting a lot of the same people that are fighting these wars, a lot of the same thinking. Like, it's no coincidence that Otis was one of these guys who was like, we have to, like, wipe them out. Or one way or another, we've got to wipe them out and make them like us. Um, that he's the guy in charge. Um, and there's, you know, there's torture. Um, there's a lot of cases of torture. There's soldiers are writing stuff home 
This is uh, from a soldier's letter that the anti the anti um, imperialist group. So it's Mark Twain, Cleveland, a bunch of these other prominent sort of anti imperialist Americans. Um, they start collecting these soldiers' letters, and this one said, uh, "We make everyone get into his house by seven p.m. We only tell a man once. If he refuses, we shoot him. We killed over three hundred natives that first night. They tried to set the town on fire. If the fire is shot from the house, we burn the house down and every house near it and shoot the natives. So they're uh, so they are pretty quiet in town now." And there's all these sorts of things that, and like the same sort of racial, like racial hatred that's going on in the U S they're exporting over there. And you, you, you see them using the N word to refer like, and like every time I see a black body, I can't get like, I'm so excited to shoot it. So it's just this, it's just like that moment, like you can see this huge difference between what's happening in Hawaii, even under McKinley early on where they're like, okay, well, we're going to defeat this treaty because these native people don't want to be part of the U S to, you know what, we're just going to go through and start massacring Filipinos until they're, until they're, they're done fighting us. Um, and in the, what they called the pacified areas, they're like, well, you guys can have some local self-governance, but we run things. Um, and American companies start coming in, Ford goes in, Pepsi, Coke, like eventually by, by world war two, like all big American companies are there. Um, but any area where there's resistance, they put people in concentration camps. They did the exact same, like they used the strategy that the Spanish did. Yeah. And the Spanish picked up their, that strategy. That's what they were doing to native Americans. That's what Fort Humboldt was for the California natives. They collected everybody at Fort Humboldt and basically starved them and concentrated in this area until they could export them. um, I think to Nevada. Um, So like, they, it's it's this moment where like they're taking what they had been used to doing to Native Americans and to a certain degree to 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 Black Americans, and now they're exporting that to Native peoples elsewhere. And wow. so, yeah, and like, dude, they do all that stuff. They take Guam, they take Puerto Rico, um, Cuba. They have to give back, but they leave. They put an amendment into the Cuban. They write the Cuban Constitution and say we have the right to come in at any time we kind of feel like it and retake Cuba. Um, so that was written into the Cuban constitution, which is insane. They uh, gave it back to Cuba or to, to Cuba, to Cuba, yeah. but we can take it over whenever. Okay. Yeah. They're like, we have to give you independence because that was in our declaration of war, but oh, yeah, it'll be uh, independence with a big asterisk next to it. Like if we ever feel like it, this gets to be us again. Um, mm-hmm. And then while that's going on, they take Hawaii. I mean, they pass that thing. They blaze it through in a joint resolution. There's lots of arguments about whether or not that's legal. Like, can you pass a joint resolution to annex something when there's no treaty? Like, there is no actual treaty of annexation. Um, but they, at that point, they don't care. Like, the Spanish-American War flips the switch for them that we no longer have to care about what other people think when we take over their land. If they're white, yeah, sure. Like, they never showed up in Spain. The Spanish-American War, you'd think the Spanish-American War would be fought either in Spain or in America, but it wasn't fought in either. It was fought in Cuba and the Philippines. Like, we never attacked Spain because there's white yeah. people there. Um, we're just taking over their places. Yeah, we're just taking over all of their all of their their empires and all the people yeah. that are in it. Yeah, so it's just... And it's... They take us, um, there'd been a long drawn out thing with American Samoa where 
yeah, the Samoans actually like they didn't want to be part of the U.S. or part of Germany. Um, but America, Germany, and Britain for about about ten or fifteen years, it was the understanding in, in the diplomatic circles, and they talk about it. Um, that eventually they'll figure out what's happening with Samoa, but America is going to get Hawaii. England is going to get Tonga and Germany can get Samoa, but they're just America wants American Samoa. So they're kind of working out details. And once all this goes through, they make the deal immediately with Germany. They're like, Hey, we will like Germany benefits from, um, they're going to pick up a bunch of other small Spanish parts. So Spain claimed other parts of, um, the Marshall Islands, they, you know, we never claimed the Northern Marianas. Germany claimed that part. We only wanted Guam. Um, and we work out a deal where Germany gets Western Samoa, which is now Samoa, and we get American Samoa. And it's just this, like the only people who were never consulted about this were Samoans. Like they, they're not, no, you guys don't get to say at this. Um, Kalakaua had actually been trying to create a confederacy earlier with us and the Samoans and the Tongans to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Um, but at this point, like they're, they're just going and they're, they're horse trading. They're like, okay, you get this, you get this, I'll keep this. Um, and they go through, um, and yeah, and that's about it. Like, and then after that, if you look at (laughs) Vietnam, if you look at Afghanistan, you look at Iraq, a lot of the same sort of thing. Like the the people there never have a say in whether or not America is going to fight a war supposedly on their behalf. Like that was, they were never consulted. No one went to Afghanistan. and was like, Hey, can we have an election and see if you want us to come in and defeat the Taliban? Like, no, yeah. like that's not happening. Um, and like, we see the same things there that we see elsewhere. Like if we don't know how to, if we don't know who, who the supposed enemies are, then they start carpet bombing stuff in Vietnam. Um, they actually built kind of concentration camps at one point in Vietnam where they're like, no, these are modern, like they're modern towns and cities and they're improved, but there's a free fire zone around them. So if any of the Vietnamese try and leave these towns, they will get shot down. Um, so it's this kind of like, it's a concentration camp with running water which is better than the ones we put the Filipinos in because like, you know, potentially millions, but definitely hundreds of thousands of Filipinos died because of the U S occupation. Um, they well, that was a, that's like the start of like telling this lie basically over and over and over again. And they're like, it works. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and like, we won the war. Once, but then yeah but then then you have to occupy this place and the people don't want you there and you're gonna have to keep yeah. killing them for for decades we're doing uh, it for them yeah <laughs> and like that's and this is the moment like because uh, like up until then there's this like with the u.s like they recognize the cubans they, they could look at the cubans and part of it is there's a lot of white cubans there's like christina aguilera's great great grandma you know, they're like, there's some white Cubans, but also they recognize that the Cubans, like the Cubans want independence the same way we do. Mm. But then when the Filipinos are arguing for that, they're like, there's not enough white Filipinos there for us to, to recognize that. And mm. also the Philippines are like, dude, the Philippines are big and rich. Cuba has some wealth. But when you look at the Philippines, I mean, the Philippines is like, it's smack dab in the middle of Asia. Uh, like the amount of wealth still to this day. 
I mean, it's a huge country. Um, so, so we took that. We, we stuck bases there and didn't pull the bases out until the last 20 years. Um, and like all of that, you know, McKinley goes in as a sort of like he wants Hawaii, but he doesn't want to go to war. It's definitely not like he didn't want to go to war for the Philippines. But once it's happened and there's this huge push and there's people in his administration, they're they're really pushing for it. They had been sort of lukewarm to going into it. Once all that happened and he got good press, then in 1900, when he ran for reelection, he ran a large largely on, hey, we we want wars. Expanded ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Like, I want at, wars. Yeah. Look at <laughs> and like my vice president is Teddy Roosevelt, who quit his job at the Department of the Navy to go and fight in the war. And like Teddy Roosevelt was one of these guys who was just like, oh, I cannot wait to go out and steal some land. Like Teddy Roosevelt loved all of this. There's some domestic stuff that like Teddy Roosevelt was kind of in favor of better work, work conditions. But he was really in favor of taking land from people. Um, and so, you know, when he's he's campaigning and he's he campaigns he's on the speech uh, on the stump. Like when he's going out campaigning, his, his speeches are things like the situation in Cuba had become um, such that we could no longer stand quiet and retain one shred of self-respect. We drew the sword and waved waged the most righteous and brilliantly successful foreign war that this generation has seen. And it's like, yeah, but what about the other part where you took over Puerto Rico and Guam and the Philippines and none of those people wanted to be there? And then you use the cover of the Spanish-American War to take over Hawaii, knowing that we didn't want you here. Like, yeah. you fought this grand, glorious war to liberate Cuba and to enslave everyone else. And, like, that's that was, that was not supposed to be the deal. Um, but... Interesting yeah. perspective. Yeah. And that's like, it's, it's crazy. Like the official justification was like, we have to stop the empire. The Spanish empire is evil and they're doing bad things to the Cubans because the Cubans want independence. And then we went and did possibly way worse to the Filipinos. Um, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like independence day, which is yesterday. And that's what, Americans celebrate their independence and how can they celebrate that if you know they basically took independence away from other people such as here (laughs) and everywhere else so you just mentioned how can you be um, glorifying that how can you be proud of that of that and so, yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I, 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 I like history more now that I'm older. <laughs> it is like, I keep telling people history is not, history is not boring. History class is boring. Yeah. Like, I definitely fell asleep in class. It was terrible. Yeah, I hated I, it. <laughs> like, I like history. I became a historian and I fell asleep in the big auditoriums where they did history 151 and 152. <laughs> like, and you like history. I I love history, and I was passed out because I could not hear any more about Rome. Um, but even and then like McKinley after this, McKinley, like the last thing is when he's dealing with Hawaii after that. Once they've been next Hawaii, there's a question. Like a lot of Hawaiians say, "Well, okay, 
you guys are next to us and whatever. That's what empires do. Right. How about home rule? How about we actually get to rule ourselves? So um, the people they put on the Hawaiian Commission, uh, McKinley appoints, are John T. Morgan, who was all in favor of empire. Um, he's the guy they sent to write the Morgan report to justify the overthrow and reported Grand Dragon, the KKK, former Confederate officer, um, Robert Hitt and Shelby McCollum, um, who are both Republicans that are in favor of empire. So they have one Democrat and two Republicans, um, but they're all very much in favor of empire. Um, and then Sanford Dole, Sanford B. Dole gets put on, on, on the Hawaiian commission and Walter Freer. And they said, look, we have Hawaiians because we have Sanford Dole and Walter Freer. Um, so the thir- first governor and the third governor, um, and Walter Freer is also the son-in-law of Dillingham. So it's, it's essentially, they, they give the over, they give the people who commit the overthrow two seats at the table. Um, and we end up with the organic act, which it has a, like a very thin layer of democracy over the top of it. But essentially the governor gets, is the governor has more power than arguably Kalakaua had after the Bayonet Constitution. I mean, the governor is mm-hmm. all powerful in this case. Um, and well, he doesn't control the money, but he controls almost everything else. The legislature has no power. Um, they keep the Japanese and the Chinese from voting, except for the handful that had been already were, were citizens of the Republic, but they left no space for them to become American citizens until their kids who are born in Hawaii become American citizens. Um, and yeah, this is the organic commission goes through and, and McKinley uses this in his, his annual address. Um, he says, um, that the organic, the work of the organic commission justify, I see it as justifying the foresight of those who for three quarters of a century have looked for, to the assimilation of Hawaii as a natural and inevitable cons- consumption, sorry, consummation in harmony with our needs and fulfillment of our cherished traditions, essentially saying what the organic act just did and what we did by taking it over justified those in Hawaii, the missionary kids who for 75 years have been trying to take over Hawaii. Um, and that, that is like, it's in fulfillment with our cherished traditions. And it is like, yeah, but you, you're you going to have to admit that your cherished tradition is stealing land from Native people, not democracy. Like, that's the cherished tradition you're working with. Um, and then they end up using Hawaii as justification for more empire, for supporting the, basically, Panama as a break-off. Um, they support the, they create the Panamanian Revolution so that they can have control over what becomes the Panama Canal. Um and they use Hawaii as a justification because McKinley in that same address says um, the construction of such a maritime highway is now more than ever indispensable um, to the intimate and ready intercommunication between our eastern and western seaboards demanded by the Hawaiian Islands and the prospective expansion of our influence and commerce in the Pacific. Um, now that we've taken over Hawaii and the Philippines, we have to go um, and take over at least the Pan- the land that we'll build the Panama Canal on, um, if not actually take over Panama. But okay. Yeah, it's just this. It's if you just, say it, it's true kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and it's it's pretty insane. It's this. Um, they they went in the space of three years from the U.S. Senate killing the treaty because Hawaiians didn't want in, 
and because Southern races didn't want us there. Um, but in three years, they go to the point where they're like, hey, we got Hawaii. We're going to have to take Panama. Um, and it's this, yeah, they went from kind of at least sort of caring about what indigenous people cared or um, wanted, what the nationalists on Cuba wanted to we, we really don't care. We're an empire now and we will continue being an empire, building this empire throughout the 20th century. F democracy. Happy 4th of July. <laughs> 4th of July. <laughs> Such a great day to celebrate. Yeah. The Republic, yeah, they declared it on the 4th of July. They did the official ceremonies for taking over Hawaii on the 4th of July. Like they used the 4th of July as the day to take down Hawaiian flags, which is why that thing in Kailua where they that dude took down those Hawaiian flags on the 4th of July. I was like, yeah, you've been doing that on this day for a long time. That That's really good background. And, so, and for all those that are hating on the people that are like trying to not allow that to occur, putting up all, a thousand flags or whatever. Um, maybe if you learned this history, you would better understand <laughs> why it's it's a slap in our face a little bit. Um, uh, I really am very interested in history, and I just kind of want to know what you hope for, um, you know, kids that are encourage kids or even adults to learn their history if you can provide any thoughts on that that would be i think a good call to action for adults and kids and my standard like this is this is why i tell people like this is why you study history history is like the stories are cool right but yeah let's be honest the stories on avatar are cooler than history like someone else can provide cool stories if we're not there but what history provides is power like we understand historically how people have gotten power how they've used power how they've manipulated power and then how other people have fought against that power so like with the stuff we were talking about today it's one thing if it was just like oh hawaii just got taken over and like you see some power there, but then we start talking about like the different ways that Hawaiians were able to manipulate that power structure, like going to Washington, DC, Hawaiians having to go and make friends with those racist Southern Democrats who like couldn't stand them, but were just like, you know, there's a lot of Brown people in Hawaii. Do you really want us coming in? Like all these different ways of manipulating power. Um, history teaches us all of those like history is really the like poli sci is a study of power now but history is the the study of of power it has been and yeah i agree with that history kind of tells you why you should be fighting yeah (laughs) and poli sci is like the how you can fight (laughs) that's my interpretation but yeah that's me as an electrical engineer so that maybe doesn't count (laughs) um uh do you have facebook or yeah. social media uh, twitter okay what's your handle um kelani kelani cook okay kelani cook. cook um thank you for coming on native stories uh sharing with us the history of july 4th and william mckinley and the spanish-american war and all the other wars and um kind of how hawaii um, was taken over. Um, just in general, thank you everybody for spending time with Native Stories. Um, 
please follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we look forward to providing more stories in the future.